So this is not about assigning wrongness. It's not about turning around and saying, you know, you're sexist, racist, you know, whatever it is. It's about creating awareness because we all have these biases. They all exist. And it's not about necessarily eliminating them, which is a very tall order. It's about managing them so that we can make decisions so that we can show up and create cultures within our workspaces that provide opportunities for everybody. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Since the Humphrey Group was founded 30 years ago by a pioneering trailblazing woman, Judith Humphrey, it has long believed in the power of women in leadership. And the reality is, as we all know, the world has not always been open and conducive to having women embrace leadership roles. And we've gone from a world where women had to change who they were to fit in to dealing with overt bias, to today, more unconscious bias. Uh, But throughout, one thing has been clear. We believe fundamentally that women can and should lead and that organizations have better outcomes, higher performance when that happens. That's why we've always had programs like our Taking the Stage program and Succeeding on Stage program that support the advancement of women by helping them find their voice, speak up, be heard, and ultimately lead on any stage that they choose. And the world has changed in those 30 years. Uh, Look no further than what we recently have in terms of the Me Too movement and the emergence of inclusion as a key principle. And so I want to have someone from our company on to talk about this evolution. Does diversity still matter? Do we still need programs that support women? Or should they be replaced by inclusive programs? And what is Me Too meant for diversity? How has that changed the conversation? How has that changed the reality for women in the world of work? And what should we do to support women in this new era? That's why my guest today is Amira Hunt. Amira is our Director of Diversity and Inclusion Programs. She's based in Vancouver. Uh, She's been with us for, I think, five or six years by now. And uh, some years ago, she led the revitalization of our Taking the Stage program. She does some of our most groundbreaking work around the world with leading organizations who want to advance diversity outcomes and support women. Uh, And I just think she's brilliant and I'm privileged to work with her. And that's why I want to have her on the Inspire podcast today. So enjoy my conversation with Amira Hunt. So my guest today is Amira Hunt. And Amira is the Director of Diversity and Inclusion at the Humphrey Group, and she joins me from scenic Vancouver, where I'm sure your weather is better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Thanks, Bart. Yeah, and it's great to have you on. Um, As many people have listened to this podcast know, or as many people have worked with the Humphrey Group know, we've had a longstanding commitment to gender equity, and which started 20 years ago, or really started 30 years ago. Our founder, Judith Humphrey, was you know, pioneering woman in the corporate world in a very different time. And 20 years ago, she and we as a company said, look, there's something 
there's a role that we can play in helping women speak up, be heard, be recognized, promoted, uh, compensated, and all the things that that they deserve. And that that commitment has really continued and broadened. And uh, you and the role that that you've taken on in the business in these last few years is a reflection of that. So all that to say, uh, great to have you on to talk about the evolving world of diversity, inclusion, and, uh, and what people can do to support greater equity in the world. So thanks for coming on. Um, thanks for having maybe, me. Yeah, my pleasure. Maybe before uh, we start with the questions, I'll, I'll just kind of give you a blank canvas to talk about your journey. You know, what led you to a passion for this work? Uh, what shaped your your journey to this point? My background is in corporate social responsibility, which is really the story of business ethics. I pursued my master's in a specific area of corporate social responsibility, one that focused on contributing to public good, helping organizations engage with issues around social justice like diversity and inclusion. I had the opportunity to connect with you, Bart, at the Humphrey Group, and an opportunity arose for me to come on board with the company. And what really spurred me to join was this program, Taking the Stage, which, as you've alluded to, has been our flagship program uh, within our diversity and inclusion portfolio. Yeah, and I'm so glad you did join. You've made such an impact, not just for us, but for women around the world through our programs. So you mentioned Taking the Stage. Uh, was something that inspired you to join. And, and maybe talk to me briefly about taking the stage and what it's all about and perhaps with the story of the kind of impact it makes. Sure. So as, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, this is our flagship leadership communication program uh, for women that was launched in 2001. And it actually just dawned on me that you know this is a program that's been running for almost 20 years. If I boil down the objective of this program, it's really about giving women the tools to help them be seen and heard as leaders every time they speak or write. And again, the, the, the purpose of this program is about helping to shed light on and address communication habits that are common, uh, certainly not specific, but ones that are common to women that often undermine their ability to be seen uh, the way they want to be seen. So as a couple of examples, um, you know, struggling with things like perfectionism, uh, using weak language, over-apologizing, upspeak, weak vocal power, uh, minimizing body language, all of these things, which you know, in many ways are, are the, res- the result of internalized sexism, but they are communication challenges that many women struggle with. And by shedding a light on them and helping women to identify them, we provide uh, guidance for how they can show up in a much more authentic way in a way that serves their leadership. And, you know, for me, I I grew up in a very progressive household. My mother worked, my father worked. Uh, I went to an all girls private school, which was extremely empowering. I was never told I couldn't do something because I was female. And yet, as I started working in the corporate world, I noticed myself falling into some of these traps where I would deflect compliments where I would take up less space in meetings at times where I would feel uncomfortable um, when the spotlight was, was on my face. And, and this was something that I, I never, I never dreamed were, was something that I would struggle with. So that's a testament to 
the insidious nature of some of the things that we're dealing with, that when we engage in habits unintentionally, that they really can undermine um, not just how you show up, but really the trajectory of your career. And, and that was something that spoke to me about taking the stage the first time I was exposed to it. It wasn't that, um, you know, I knew I had all these challenges and I needed help dealing with them. It was that I was blissfully unaware of the <laughs> habits I was falling mm-hmm. into that were really harming my career. So when you joined in 2013, you know, diversity was a priority, but the world of diversity has changed dramatically since then. Just give us a broad strokes trip through uh, those changes and from where you where it was when you joined to where we are today. So I think in, in, in 2013, around sort of the early 20-teens, um, gender diversity was caught up in, in Sheryl Sandberg's book about leaning in. Um, and I think this was a, an interesting moment because that narrative was all about women leaning into their careers, as the title would suggest, but in encouraging women to feel like they had a lot of agency and that they were empowered to take control of their careers. And that was very much aligned with the work that we at the Humphrey Group were doing at the time, which was providing tools um, and, and support to women so that they could authentically show up in, in their careers and find success, whatever that looked like. And, and that was the basic premise of the book. Over the past few years, and and particularly since 2017 with the advent of Me Too, we've seen the conversation shift to put more focus on the system um, as opposed to simply the agency of women. So in the way that the conversation has shifted, we're not just seeing uh, women stepping up and we're not just seeing companies ask women to uh, take on bigger roles and take on more prominent voices, but we're also seeing the conversation focus on what role corporations, what role organizations, businesses in general need to play in creating an environment where people can be successful, not just women. Um, And that really is the rise of inclusion, which we've seen take hold. I guess one of the questions that brings us to is with inclusion rising with this, you know, as you said, this transformative effect of Me Too saying, look, it's not about women reshaping themselves or showing more agency. It's about organizations waking up to the fact that they have to be proactive to have women succeed. Does gender diversity still matter? Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think, and to be clear, I think where we're at now is that it's both, right? That we we have this sense of agency. We're encouraging women to speak up and, and take control of their careers, but, but the system also has a role to play. So the simple answer is yes, um, absolutely. And, and Michael Bach, who you had on one of your earlier podcasts, who's a, a great partner and I know someone who we at the Humphrey Group really respect in terms of his expertise, um, uh, put it really clearly, which is this concept of uh, diversity is critical to inclusion. You can't have one without the other. Diversity is like being invited to the dance and inclusion is what happens when you get there. Does somebody invite you onto the dance floor? And if we reflect on the challenges of gender diversity, we can see simply by the numbers that it's still an issue. So, for example, um, in Canada alone, women percent women account for less than three percent of female CEOs of the hundred most influential companies within the S and P TSX. We only have one female CEO, who I believe is Nancy Southern. Um, in Canada, women still earn less than men, uh, roughly eighty-seven cents on the dollar. So, um, you know, 
inclusion is really important. Coming together and creating an environment where people can be successful is part of the story, but it's not the whole story, which is why we remain active in uh, gender diversity and supporting members of the LGBTQ two-spirit community, as well as visible minorities. So is inclusion, is the rise of inclusion a response to the fact, I mean, I, I've been in the the business world and for 20 years. And, you know, one of the most frustrating things for me as a proponent of gender equity is that year after year, the numbers that you refer to around representation in executive and leadership roles do not change. And the pay gap does not change. And, that, and this just is stubbornly, stubbornly stuck at where it has been when I started my career. So is inclusion the response to that saying, all right, we've been trying diversity, but it's not enough. We now have to empower people who are at the table? I believe it is. Um, you know, we, we, if you look at sort of the historical development of, of business ethics, diversity and inclusion, um, inclusion is still relatively new to the game. And in my opinion, I think that is really what we're looking at. In the past, we've sort of said, okay, groups that are uh, quote unquote diverse, you need to do more work. You need to fit into this system. And, and what we're recognizing now is that the system is stacked against certain groups. It's stacked against women. And, and this is not necessarily an intentional thing. It's simply that the system has been designed for a certain group by a certain group. And for us to move this needle, we need to create structures that support the success of these groups. Um, and this is a really challenging question. You know, something that I often say is, don't go asking a question if you don't want the answer. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, the answer means all of us stepping up and making some changes and understanding that the status quo needs to shift in terms of how we all show up, not just in terms of how women show up or visible minorities or members of, uh, of members of any of the other communities. And I think a big uh, catalyst in having that discussion has been Me Too. I mean, Me Too has, has been, again, in my career, one of the seminal moments of changing how we perceive diversity, inclusion, these systems. What what do you think? I mean, it's early days, but what will the legacy of Me Too be in the corporate world and in, and in the world of large organizations like governments? So when, when we talk about Me Too, um, particularly in the corporate world, we're largely referring to Me Too circa October 2017, which was sparked by Ronan Farrell's article about Harvey Weinstein. But but the actual slogan, Me Too, was coined back in 2006 by a woman named Tarana Burke, who used it to highlight uh, sexual abuse and instances um, of abuse in general against women of color. So our current understanding of Me Too um, has a couple of really important pieces that I think will continue to be the legacy of this movement as a whole. The first big piece is that, you know, this is a situation in which women felt empowered to come together and speak up and speak out against injustice, specifically the instances of uh, sexual abuse and sexual harassment in the workplace. But it also galvanized a, a greater and an interesting conversation about the current state of inequity um, in developed countries in general. And that's done a couple of things. Um, first, I think it's forced us to confront what's really been going on, which a lot of people know and some people didn't know, which is the scale to which women often face discrimination and abuse. Me Too has sparked a conversation that even for me personally has really hit home in talking to women in my life and understanding how many of them have suffered sexual harassment, how many of them have suffered sexual abuse. 
And we just didn't talk about it. It just wasn't something that was part of a day-to-day conversation. And bringing that to the forefront is, is forcing us to confront that as a part of our, our, our current state. Second, it's forced us to confront the role the system has played in perpetuating gender inequity, specifically power and privilege. And, and we've already talked a bit about this part in terms of how the system is stacked against women. Um, which is part of the new conversation as we're seeing it in terms of how gender equity has evolved. And third, and most interesting, it's, it's forced us to confront the role that men need to play in order for us to move this conversation about gender equity and about inclusion forward. So let, let's shift to talking about that tangibly, the, almost kind of going into a bit of a toolkit that people can use to support and promote and further gender equity. And and let's start with leaders. What is the conversation that they have to be able to have right now with anyone in their organization about diversity and inclusion? Where I see the investment needs to happen is not actually in the conversation, but it's in the prep work behind the conversation, particularly for leaders of of women who are men and women and people who identify as non-binary. One of the first things that I think needs to happen uh, that you already alluded to is um, education. And by that, I mean educating yourself, taking some time and energy and putting that towards uh, understanding diversity and inclusion at a a deeper level and what those concepts mean to you. Um, You know, you said you can you can Google search that you can look at McKinsey, HBR, Catalyst, Um, the amount of leaders who actually do that um, in my experience is far fewer than we think. Hmm. I guess we spend our we spend our time in not for you talking about this, teaching it. But that's surprising to me to hear that most people don't. Yeah, I mean, and it's 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 a really interesting thing because you know, you want know I'm working with uh, HR professionals who are going into their organizations and they're saying, yes, you know, we want to invest in this. We need to strengthen our female talent pipeline. We need to get more female leaders. Um, Uh, to the table. When I ask them about diversity and inclusion education at their most senior leadership levels, um, often they sort of look at me with a bit of a blank stare and say, well, uh, you know, we haven't done a lot of work there. And and what the research consistently shows us is that executive buy-in is critical. And that's not just about, um, you know, saying a few nice words here and there. It's about really understanding what this is about, taking ownership um, of outcomes. And for me, uh, that's where the conversation needs to begin, is around some uh, robust education. And, and the reason it's so important, particularly at a leadership level, is that if you're not familiar with these concepts, chances are you're not familiar with the cost of doing hmm. nothing. Okay, so I'm going to give you the magic wand here. Every person listening, and if they're listening to this, presumably they have some interest, passion for diversity inclusion. What are the three things they have to be able to define and explain for themselves? First and foremost, uh, what is diversity and what is inclusion and how do those two pieces fit together? First and foremost, those concepts, again, are ones that are, are not terribly complex, but there are ones that as you look at them for yourself and say, what does this mean? What does this mean within my world? That internalization of what those concepts means is a powerful, uh, a powerful piece. It's not just about going and reading a bunch of definitions. It's about understanding how does that show up for you? What does diversity look like within your circle? What does inclusion look like 
in in how you show up on a day-to-day basis. Okay. So once you know what diversity is to you, why it matters to you, once you know what inclusion is to you, why it matters, and once you know the link between them, then what? What should people listening then do once they've armed themselves and equipped themselves with this knowledge? Well, once you've armed yourself and equipped yourself with this knowledge, the next step is really the hardest step, which is uh, to check yourself. Um, Something that has become really prevalent in the conversation about diversity and inclusion is the concept of implicit bias. Having healthy conversations about diversity and inclusion is as much about understanding this conceptual debate as it is understanding how you fit into it. Um, This is an area where I I am seeing a lot of pushback, um, and not necessarily from a place of negativity, but from a place of fear, that when we start looking at our biases, and these biases are ones that are implicit in the way that we make snap judgments, in the way that we uh, surround ourselves with people, we may start finding things that we don't necessarily like that we have these biases, that we have these preferences. So how, and that doesn't che- so how sorry, sorry. I jump in. So how do we check ourselves? Let's say we all have an unconscious or implicit bias. How do we go check ourselves around those? So there are a lot of tools out there that you can engage with. And again, I, I encourage people to be very um, aware of the pitfalls in, in some of those tools. So, for example, um, Harvard provides a free online implicit bias test. And we can put a link you... to that in the, uh, in the sure. show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will make you read through saying that the findings of, of this test provide, you know, no insight into your psyche. I mean, they're very clear on, on, on what the test does and what it doesn't do. But the point is, is that it, it challenges you to begin thinking about the things that you don't know that you don't know the assumptions that you make about the people around you. Another really interesting thing that you can do to tap into that is just look at the people around you. If you are a decision maker, look at your trusted circle. How diverse is that circle? Who are the people who get the the big projects in your company? Who are the people who spring to mind, first and foremost, for promotion? And it's not to say that these people aren't great people. They're not the best people for the job. But we look at the world through a lens. And the lens is often one that is very rosy in our own reflection. So this is not about assigning wrongness. It's not about turning around and saying, you know, you're sexist, racist, you know, whatever it is um, that you may find in terms of preferences. It's about creating awareness because we all have these biases. They all exist. And it's not about necessarily eliminating them, which is a very tall order. It's about managing them so that we can make decisions, so that we can show up and create cultures within our workspaces that provide opportunities for everybody, that we create an environment where people, again, feel safe, respected, and valued. And that's simply about being uh, aware of some of your blind spots. I love that point. And I think it's it's something that, as you said, you have to kind of put yourself in a position of vulnerability to recognize that you may have a, a very rosy colored view of the world. I mean, we're all good at confirmation bias and, uh, you know, crafting an image in the mirror that we like. And it's important to to put yourself in that position. So 
Yeah, yeah. Good, and that's good and advice. that's again, Bart, where we see we see a lot of um, resistance to conversations about inclusivity. And again, I don't believe because it, it's because there is necessarily a lack of interest, but it's because in many ways people um, are afraid of what they may find, and that's where we need to show a lot of courage in order to change the status quo. That there are things in our system, in the way that we behave, in the way that we show up, that cause inequity. That doesn't make you necessarily a bad person. These aren't explicit. Uh, manifestations of of sexism, but but it is something that's contributing to a system that we're we're living in. Well, I think if you're if you're listening and you're keen to to lead change, keen to promote gender equity, keen to be heard on the topic of gender equity, even if you're not leading people, you just have to you have to speak up, and you have to have this courage that you're talking about, and first by doing this this work yourself. So okay, so you've done the work, you've. <laughs> And obviously, it's not just done, but you've, you've started to invest the time in building your knowledge, in checking yourself, looking in the mirror. Then what? Then is the time to start having conversations, in my mind. And with um, I noticed there's a, uh, well, with, with everybody. So, again, when I, when I look at inclusivity, which is, is it, you know, this is where we want to get to when we talk about gender equity, because equity should be for everybody not just for women. Right? This is this is about creating space for everybody. Um, the next step is to start having some conversations. So let's, can you give me a, an example of someone, you know, a client or someone you know who had done the education, had checked his or her biases and then started to make an impact by having these conversations? Because I think it's, you know, in, in listening, it makes sense, but let's, let's bring it to, bring it to life for me. What does success look like? Uh, I have a, a very good client who's based here in Vancouver, and I've worked with her for a number of years. And her position in the company was leading diversity and inclusion as a strategy. And her strategy was then to start having conversations with the executive leadership team about not just diversity, but around inclusion from the perspective of how the company could increase its competitive advantage in the marketplace. And this was largely about retaining talent. And as she went through that, she provided them with additional resources and information that they could do their own homework. And it was after that that she was able to go back to them and start having more robust conversations about what these concepts mean and the types of conversations and types of training that the executive leadership team needed to engage in themselves. But again, it was from a position of understanding that these people were, again, an all-male group who were fairly uncomfortable talking about uh, uh, both diversity, but certainly inclusion, particularly if it was training that they themselves were going to have to do. But over time, by listening to their concerns, listening to their challenges, and, and you know, credit where credit is due, for them to engage first in education and then to start thinking about what these concepts mean to them, they were able to start having much more interesting conversations and eventually do some um, um, specific inclusion training that did some uh, gave them some basic tips and tools um, from a senior leadership perspective that allowed them to get the ball rolling. So, Amira, you, you've given us real clarity on what we can do to educate ourselves, to understand our biases, and then to start having the conversations to make it focus on the business outcome, to empower people to educate themselves. So let's say you get started. You know, you've given us examples of people who have done that. You get some momentum. Then 
what role do people as leaders have to sustain that? I mean, is it something that you have to be a champion of indefinitely or is it something that in an ideal world becomes part of the dialogue? Something that speaks to me is this idea of sharing in the burden of outcome. When, when we talk about gender equity, when we talk about creating a, a culture of inclusion, it's something that everybody benefits from. And I think that in many ways, we may still be stuck in this notion of you know, affirmative action. If, if some people win, then other people lose. And I, I firmly believe that that is no longer the case. So shifting our mindset to understanding that this is something that we all need to have a share in. So as we move uh, from just being active in gender equity, showing up once a year on International Women's Day and really shifting the conversation to being an ally, which is something that you do on a daily basis, uh, is going to be critical to moving this forward. And the way to think about it, in my mind, that makes it very clear and very manageable in some ways is that we're looking to shift the status quo to create environments, as I've already said, where people feel safe, valued, and respected. And that is about how we we show up on a daily basis. It's about how you send emails. It's about how you invite people to meetings. It's about how you talk. So um, to your point, Bart, this is an everyday process and it is going to take time and it's going to take pressure for people to change. But the first step is having conversations and creating awareness for how you can make that something that's part of your everyday. Yeah, and I love that. It's not really people listening and, and I am taking away, I think we should take away from what you're saying is this isn't about becoming a crusader. This is about changing how you think and how you speak on a day-to-day basis in whatever world you operate in, whatever business, whatever government organization, so that you live these principles and promote equity. Is, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Just, just becomes absolutely. part of your, you know, how we speak. <laughs> exactly. And, and it boils down to some very simplistic concepts, but you know, if it were that simple, chances are we would have already done it. This is hard work. Um, so it's important that people recognize that. But as we've talked about already, Bart, half of uh, uh, changing the way we show up is shifting our mindset. And we do that by educating ourselves, um, by thinking about things differently and challenging things that we don't know that we don't know. And I think we can all take away that there's there's a lot to learn, uh, but that you know we and the people we work with, the people we <laughs> live with outside of work, we're all going to benefit from a more diverse and inclusive world where everyone feels heard. So, look, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and demystifying a lot of these concepts, you know, diversity, inclusion, you know, Me Too, and providing some really tangible things that people can do, you know, to start this process of promoting um, diversity, inclusion in their workplace. So thank you. My pleasure, Bart. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amira Hunt. You can see from uh, from what she had to say why I'm so lucky to have her in the company. Uh, I learned so much from her and from our whole team, really, about how we can continue to evolve, how we develop leaders, how we support diversity, and how uh, leaders of tomorrow will have to inspire. Yeah, just uh, just appreciative of that. Next week on the Inspire Podcast, I have as my guest, Paul Carroll. 
I got to know Paul as a director and head of the project management office in Scotiabank's um, Global Wholesale Operations Group. But Paul's past life was a 25-year career as an officer in the Canadian Forces, including uh, five tours of Afghanistan, retired as a major of the Special Operations uh, Group. And somewhat paradoxically, I have Paul on to talk about vulnerability. Here's one of the toughest people I know um, leading some of the most dangerous missions. And the number one thing he wants to discuss is why vulnerability is key to building trust. It's a great conversation, a lot of cool stories, a lot of humility. Uh, so tune in next week for my chat with Paul Carroll. Thanks. Thanks.